Have you ever found yourself beginning to do one thing and immediately thinking of 10 more things you need to do so you jump to one of them and then you kind of wake up and all of a sudden like, what's just happened? Everything gets all fragmented. We live in a society filled with busyness addicts. And this culture seeps into every pore of our being. For some of us, present company excluded. This has been programmed into us by our parents. (laughs) You've got these tapes playing in your mind. Never leave till tomorrow what you can do today. The early bird gets the worm. God helps those who help themselves. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man wealthy and wise. You know, all of... All of these things, you know where they came from, right? Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) We see ourselves as accountable before an ethic of work. And this ethic views work alone as virtuous. And everything else as somehow less than virtuous. Now life can be different. We don't have to live this way. And those who are among us who are not from America know exactly how insane we are. (laughs) And that life doesn't have to be like this. But the truth of the matter is that no matter how well we understand the need to slow down, no matter how much we feel drawn to a different rhythm of life, no no matter how how much conviction we have behind our plan to do something about it. At the end of the day, there are forces working against us if we want to try to change this way of life. Now, there are legitimate seasons of busyness. There are seasons of life that require high energy and long hours, starting your own business, pursuing a major project, a a new physician in a residency program, a nursing mother, a soldier in battle. There are legitimate seasons of hurry and busyness. And then there are seasons that may or may not be legitimate, but they're entirely out of our control. For example, some of the effects of globalization are this incredible economic pressures toward efficiency and productivity. Now, what this has resulted in is that companies are demanding more and more of their workers. Not more work. We actually have a shorter work day than we used to have. But more varied tasks. Tighter deadlines. Because we have efficiency, right? Because the hours become monetized. Tighter deadlines. Stricter accountability for our time. And then on top of that, One of the results of globalization is that there is all of this new learning that people have to do on their jobs to keep up. And when you put a person to work in one of these companies who's deeply responsible and committed, and the work they're doing is challenging and enjoyable, and the goals are big and good, and then you put a few of these men and women together, you get a culture, an ethos at a company that makes it virtually impossible to take time off. To not work the long hours. Now this is a very difficult situation to be in. 
But there are other reasons that we're busy. Reasons that are far more under our own control. Let me give you a sampling. Nine reasons that I see people choose busyness. First of all, some people just love being under pressure. They're addicted to urgency. They like the rush like a heroin addict likes the rush. And it really is an addiction. And then there are those who are busy because that's the way they get a lot of money. Right? There are some jobs that your money is tied to billing. And you jump on that hamster wheel. And the grueling hours aren't because you love money, but you're addicted to the way of life that money empowers. Right? When you start outsourcing a lot of your life, in paying other people to do the things that you were raised doing yourself, now you've got to make a lot of money to pay all... And then you get wrapped up in this lifestyle that just requires grueling hours. A third reason some people are busy is because of their desire to be in the cool group. And this isn't just high school. You know the inner circle, the inner ring? Whenever you're excluded, it's anguish. And whenever you're invited into that group of people, there's a rush of pleasure. So maybe you don't like being busy. You don't like filling your evenings and your weekends with commitments. But it's much more terrible to be left out. And so you go along. Number four, the desire to prove ourselves. When someone asks how you're doing, your response is busy. So busy. Crazy busy. And really what you've done is you've, you've got to boast disguised as a complaint. You, you blurt it out like it's a complaint, but in reality, what you're saying is, my life couldn't possibly be meaningless or trivial if I'm so busy, if I'm completely booked, if I'm in demand every hour. So you have no time to spare. Your schedule is packed because to have free time would be worst of all. That would mean you don't matter. You're not needed. You see, busyness can be a result of fear. That's a fifth reason. Because of fear. The need to win approval. Whether it's from our parents or our peer set or our bosses. This need to win approval. It's, it's driven by this fear of not meeting expectations. So we find ourselves frantically trying to satisfy half a dozen different demands on our time just to stave off the, the, the idea of disappointing somebody. Number six, maybe you're one of those people whose idea of a full life is an exciting life. Now think about what that means. I want to make the most of life so I do a lot of things. What you're doing is you're saying that you are defined... By action, by what, you're do, by what you do, rather than the quality on the inside. Now, this is a lot of America. We define ourselves by what we do instead of by who we are deep on the inside. An eighth reason is that you don't trust God. Some people are busy because they, no matter what they say, or sing, or pray, or profess, some of us, our busyness is a function of our lack of faith. There was a 14th century theologian, Hilary of Tours. Listen to this. He diagnosed busyness as a blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. 
14th century. You're busy because if you're not busy, things get out of control. If you don't do it, it won't get done. You're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. You've developed this compulsive and controlling temperament that is insufferable to the people around you. This is the heart of Psalm 127, right? In vain, you work late and get up early. Why is that vain? Because you don't recognize unless the Lord does it, it's done in vain. Psalm 127 is a profound prophetic accusation of our over-busy culture. People who can't get the right amount of sleep, Psalm 127 says, are people who don't trust God. Show me somebody who can't get their work done in the normal hours, and I'll show you somebody who can't get their work done no matter how much time they have. Because it's a function of trust for this person, not of the affairs at hand. A ninth reason some people are, liz- are, are, are busy, to be honest, is because they're lazy. You see, when you lazily, lazily abdicate the hard work of deciding who you are and what your purpose in life is, when you lazily ignore that incredibly hard job, other people will decide for you what you're supposed to be doing. And they'll ravage you. It's really hard to have a deep center to say, this is who I am, this is who God called me to be. And so, no, I won't do that. Laziness. Moral laziness leads a lot of people to busyness. Now, this is our society. For these and other reasons, we are overscheduled, addicted to busyness, and we're crippled by urgency. But at the heart of this series of sermons is this. Our American way of life is doomed to destruction. And there is, a, there is a kingdom right now being formed in secret that will take the place of this American way of life. And this kingdom will outlast America. This kingdom will have no end. This kingdom is what Jesus taught us to pray for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven also means God help me to live by, in my time the way I'm going to live in time for all of eternity. Bring it now the way it will be. And in this kingdom, what we saw last week was that time is a gift from God. It's not our enemy. It's not something to strive against. It's not something to master. Time is a gift to be received. And we saw last week that in this kingdom, time is structured by God, that God has given time a rhythm and we need to learn to live. Not See, the problem is we're all looking for balance in our lives. The real problem is not our need for balance. It's our need for rhythm. And I'm going to come back to that. And thirdly, we saw last week that in, in the kingdom of God, time is not only a gift. It's not only been structured, but it has been made holy by God. It is holy. In other words, God has a claim on our time. And our job is to discern that claim and to embrace it. Now, all of this points to the, to the reality that our harried, hurried, over-busy lives are a symptom, not of our commitments, but of our betrayal. We have betrayed the kingdom of God. They're a sign not of, of us being responsible but of us being irresponsible. Being overly busy and hurried is not 
only psychologically unhealthy, it is a moral problem. It's a spiritual illness. So our great challenge is to discover how we can live with a calmness of spirit and a patience and a joy and an alertness to what God is doing around us. This morning, we're looking at the basic unit of time called a day. Next week, we'll look at the week. And then the following week, we'll look at a year. But today, we're talking about a day. How can we receive a day as a gift instead of a race, a a resource to be managed? There are three important pieces of biblical wisdom that we desperately need in our frenetic culture when it comes to the day. Number one, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. It's the very first page of the Bible. Or, Alan, I don't even know how to make a joke about the iPad. iPad. How, how do you even say what it is? I don't know. Turn to Genesis 1. Look up Genesis 1. Is that, is that it? Notice verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And at the end of verse 5, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And the end of verse 8, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. Verse 23, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Verse 24, the end of verse 31, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, did you hear there was a rhythm? Evening and morning. God works, he said, let there be evening and morning. God works, evening and morning. Evening and morning. Now, what you need to see here, this is the first piece of biblical wisdom with regard to a day, is that God has structured each day with boundaries. The boundaries are evening and morning, nighttime and daytime. Now, throughout human history, most people have slept by night and worked by day. Now, obviously, those boundaries have always been crossed, right? Every night, for thousands of years, humans have been up watching and herding and nursing the ill and nursing the babies, feeding the fire, setting out the dough for the next day to rise. And then there are those seasons in life where the lines get blurred because of emergencies or festivals, feasting, partying, staying up into the night. And then there are weirdos like Mike Trainum who just sleep on some weird schedule that most of us can't comprehend. The problem is modern technology is changing the shape of time. The light bulb, the internet, and email are knocking time out of shape. These days, time moves to a totally different rhythm and it has nothing to do with the sun. It's a digital clock. That's the beat of time in our culture. 
And this digital clock has no regard for the boundaries of day and night. Much less weekends and weekdays or seasons. I'm not saying that working days is in some way morally superior to working at night. My point is that technology is turning time into a swamp. Right? It, it, with laptops and smartphones, life is becoming so portable that we're losing all boundary. Time is losing its shape. Technology is not value neutral. It's giving us round-the-clock employment and shopping and entertainment, but we must count the cost. We must evaluate these technologies. The first piece of biblical wisdom with regard to how to receive a day is this. The real need is not so much about balancing our lives between work and rest and play. The real need is developing a rhythm appropriate to time. It's stepping in rhythm with the time that God is giving us. To receive the day, we need to receive the rhythm of the day that God has put into the grain of the universe. Now, on a very practical level, let me say, this means don't let your work become a swamp. You know what a swamp is, right? It's where it just the water spreads into every nook and cranny where your work seeps into every corner of your house. Think about it. Because I have an iPhone... My work can be on my bedside table, right? At any moment, it can ding with an email from work. And there was a time where the bedroom had nothing to do with work, right? Not only do we take work home, we take it into every room of our homes. That's tragic. So... Again, I'm not talking about emergencies. I'm not talking about being unavailable to people. I'm talking about our pattern of life. Now, for for one, one of the ways that I deal with this is that on Sunday afternoons, I turn my cell phone off because my email and phone calls and texting comes through it. And my off day is basically Monday. So I turn my cell phone off and I don't, I try, I don't always succeed at this, not check it again until Tuesday morning. Because work is so related to my phone. Now you can get a hold of me if it's an emergency. You know where I live. Or Janelle's cell phone. Hers is kept on. One of the ways that Janelle has tried to practice boundaries in her life is that we don't allow our children to come out of their rooms in the morning until the hallway light is on. If not, Janelle's work as a mother will invade every waking moment of her life. So our kids go to bed at 7.30 and they're not allowed out of the room until it's after 7.30 in the mornings. And that's so that my wife can have boundaries to her life. And what I'm saying is this is the principle. God made life to have these boundaries every day. You have to find the the way that works with the contour of your life. This is Ecclesiastes 3, right? For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to... There's a, in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Work is beautiful in its time. It's not when it gets out of sorts. That's the first piece of wisdom. Second piece of wisdom is this. Go back to Genesis 1, verse 8. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. 
Verse 19, there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 23, there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Verse 31, there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. When does the day start in the Bible? In the evening. For most of us, the day begins when the alarm clock goes off. But here's a fundamentally different approach. In the hymn of creation that opens the scripture, God says to us over and over, trying to drill it into our minds, there was evening and there was morning the first day that the day starts at night. Now, this simple shift in perspective is fundamental if you want to stop being tyrannized by the day and you want to receive the day as a gift. God has given us a daily rhythm that starts at night. Now, that's grace. That's grace. We go to sleep and God begins his work. We wake up and we are called to participate in God's work that's already been going on. We, re- we begin the day in faith. But always grace is first. Grace is pre- previous. Grace is primary. We wake up into a world we don't make. Into a salvation we can't earn. Evening, God begins without our help. The day begins without you. It begins without your work. It begins without your labors. Morning, God invites you. Thanks for showing up. We've already been going at this. I'm glad you're going to participate. It doesn't start with you. I'm already here. I'm already doing the work. Welcome in. To my work day. Now when you understand that the day begins at the darkening point. You can begin to understand something fundamental about humanity. Morning becomes a time to join in to the labors that have already begun before us. And evening is a time to let God take over. See, at the heart of the Christian approach to time is the steadfast insistence that God created the earth and God, in his wisdom, chose to separate light from dark, not to blend the two. So the problem is that the light bulb and the internet have made us erase all distinctions. And that God is active in the earth every day. And he invites us into the ongoing work of caring for his creation. Whatever part of, whatever vocation you have, your your vocation is you joining with God in this world. Forgetting this fundamental truth and starting your day at the alarm clock is a seriously costly mistake because then the blare of the alarm begins to define the starting point of work and your productivity becomes the source of your identity and now you're playing into a culture where success equals production and those who don't produce are unsuccessful and inferior at the end of the day Our date books become the defining templates of our lives. And we actually believe that we've earned the air we breathe. 
What, when that happens, not only are we too busy, we are also profoundly mistaken about the true nature of things. We think all of this depends on us. And if we don't do it, it won't get done. Now, what I'm saying is that time is a structure and God created humans after he created the rhythm and he introduced humans to the rhythm. And that we are created to live in the rhythms of creation. And there is nothing we can do to speed up or slow down the rhythms. That the frantic approach of our culture, what we need to do is stop aiming for balance and start aiming for rhythm. And that will lead to balance. Problem is, some of us walk through our days like I dance. All out of tune, all out of step. (laughs) Our lives are jerky. Sorry, Scott, about your dancing. I've heard about it. Now, one more very practical, profound approach to your day that the Bible offers. It's a very simple habit that if you would develop it, you will be able to put down a stake in the swamp of time that we live in. You'll be able to put down a stake in this vast, formless, boundaryless sea of time that is engulfing America. Now, this habit I want to commend to you, it's time-tested. It goes back to the beginnings of Scripture. It's tried and true, and it will give you a way. If you will practice it diligently, not perfectly, but just keep at it, it'll give you a way of developing a degree of freedom from the clock. Fixed hour prayer. This is the practice. This is the habit. Fixed hour prayer. Now that's a new term for something I'm going to show you. You actually know about it. And it's all through scripture. Fixed hour prayer is when you set aside a specific time to pray. This is what Daniel was doing. It's what Peter was doing. It's what all those scriptures we read. It's what all those people were doing. It's when you set a specific time throughout your day to give attention directly and solely to God. Now, these moments in time, they are moments when you deliberately lean into the wind of our culture and you put down an anchor amid the swells of the day. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look in your Bible at Psalm 119, verse 164. Psalm 119... Verse 164, the psalmist says, seven times a day, I praise you. Now, that was fixed hour prayer. He had seven set times. Now, what religion still practices as a core part of their identity this today? Islam. And it's a far smarter practice than many Christians go through. That seven times a day, the psalmist says, I stop whatever I'm doing... And I praise you. Psalm 55 verse 17. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. This doesn't mean all the time. It means there are three set times. In the morning, at noontime, and in the evening. This psalmist stops. And at this particular season in the psalmist's life, he's complaining. That's his type of prayer. Look at Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. This is what um, Jeremy read to us. 
When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This was his habit. Three times a day, he stopped and prayed. What's happening here is that the saints of old would mark the cardinal points of the sun. It's rising, it's zenith, it's setting, it's nadir. They would mark these with communal or personal prayer. It's different in different places in the world, in different times of life. Now, by the New Testament period, the Jewish people in Palestine had begun to, be, had begun to pull aside for prayer five times a day. 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 noon, 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. It, was, it coordinated with the ringing of the bells in the Roman economic system. Six, the day began. They, the bells would ring at these times and whenever. So what, the, what the, new, the Jews during the New Testament time would do is when the Romans were ringing bells about the economic system, the Jews would stop and remind themselves it's not about the Roman Empire. And they used the system to subvert the system. In fact, the birth of the church happens at one of these hours of prayer. Acts chapter 2, verse 15. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The third hour, does anybody know what time? 9 a.m. What happened? Pentecost happened at the 9 a.m. prayer time. And did you know that the first detailed miracle of the church, the healing of the lame man on the temple steps, occurred when and where it did? Because two Christians were on their way to 9 a.m. prayers. Listen to Acts 3.1. Now Peter and John were going... I'm sorry, to, to 3 p.m. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. The ninth hour is the 3 o'clock. They start day at 6 a.m. So 9 is 6. They were going to the temple at the prayer hour. Why? Because they were Jews. Because that's what their grandparents had done and their great-grandparents and their great-great-grandparents. And, and when Jews get scattered and they're not living near the temple, wherever they are, they stop and they pray. And then a few years later, one of the most defining marks in the history of the church is what Alec read to us. Listen to how many times it references fixed hour prayer. Peter's vision of the descending sheet filled with clean and unclean animals occurred when he went up on the roof to pray at what time? At noon. He was on a journey and he stopped and he went up on a roof to pray at noon. Why did he go up there at noon to pray? Because he was in the mood? No. Fixed hour prayer is... Like I said last week, it's like showing up for dinner at the Spears house. You come to the table whether you're ready or not, and you just show up for it. <laughs> Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He was on a journey, and he stops for this prayer. And then in, in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 3, we see that there's another reference to, to prayer. And in verse 30, Cornelius is praying at the fixed hour time. So by the time of Christ, the Jewish people had long been praying at set times. And the earliest Christians, who were Jews, just carried on the practice. And all of the historical evidence indicates that the church kept doing this in the 2nd century, in the 3rd century, in the 4th century, in the 5th century, and whenever they spread, wherever they spread. Now, I'm not trying to say it's always at 6, 9, 12, 3, 5. In fact, historical evidence and the Bible indicates that fixed hour prayer has great variation. Sometimes in the Bible, it's morning and noon. It's, there's some people in the Bible that theirs are two times a day. Some in the Bible, it's five times a day. Sometimes it's seven times a day. 
Morning and evening prayer are almost always mentioned whenever fixed hour prayer is mentioned either in the Bible or in historical records. Why? Because morning is the beginning of the day and evening is the ending of the day. What I'm saying is there's, there's rhythm. You need to find a way to do fixed hour prayer that works with the contours of your life. Right? It might not be seven times a day. It might not be three times a day. I think it should at least be two times a day. I think you should at least break the long silence of the night first with prayers of praise instead of worrying about your task at hand. Look, here's my habit. I do morning prayer, noontime prayer, which for me is at 1.30. And then I do prayer at 4.30 at the end of my day where I thank God for the good work He's given me. Sometimes I only have like three or four minutes to do this, but I, I do it. And, you know, I'm not perfect at this. I fail miserably often. But I pray in the morning. I pray at noon. I love my noontime prayer. There's this great prayer in the Anglican tradition. Um, how does it start? Uh, for this midday moment of rest, we give you thanks. Bless the work we've begun. Make good its defects. And help us to finish it in a way that pleases you. I love praying that in the middle of the day. It's a way of calling me to attention before God and reminding me that this is His work. It's, it's a bunch of fish and loaves. You know, it's not going to do much. God bless its defects. At the end of the day, I, if, I, if I don't have my end of the day prayer before I go home, I get to my house frazzled and not able to be present to my children and my wife. So what I do is I create these boundaries and the way I create the end of the day boundaries, I try very hard at 4.30 to go into a... No, my schedule is much different than most of yours. You know, I'm paid to be somewhat a monk and you, some of you, um, you can't do it the way I do it. I'm saying you've got to find a way that works. To, but here's what I've discovered. Fixed hour prayer. My parents taught me to have a daily time with God. When I, from the moment I could read, I've read my Bible Every day. I was just taught to do that. That was my culture, to spend time with God every day. I remember when I was a senior in high school, getting up every morning, I can still see it. I'm sitting at my desk at 6 a.m. and spending like 15 minutes reading the Bible, memorizing Scripture, praying. It was so formative to my senior year of high school. I've still got my prayer journals, and there are friends that are Christians today and members at the church mom and dad are at that I can read in my prayer journal where I was praying for them to convert and become Christians. It's this amazing thing to look back at how God has shaped my life. Over the last four or five years, I've learned, though, that one of the weaknesses of the typical evangelical quiet time is that you spend time with God in the morning and then you get to the bed at the end of the day and you haven't thought about Him since because life gets so busy. And I've learned from fixed hour prayer that I can put these stakes in time and, and that by showing up, even if it's just for two minutes, the time goes off, you make a cell of quiet and solitude within your heart. And it might be you just pray the Our Father. You might be at a place where you can't go and leave everybody, but at noon or 12.30 or 1.30, whatever your time is, you have a beep and you can just close your eyes and pray the Our Father. And what happens as you practice fix-hour prayer? Now, I do morning, 1.30, 4.30. My family, we typically, we're not perfect at this, have an evening prayer time. 
It was so neat. Last night, we, my parents came. You know when your schedule gets disrupted? things. My parents came last Sunday. and We haven't had evening prayer as a family since they got here. We've just been, you know, how things get shifted around. Last night, Shay's getting sleepy in the living room. We're all sitting around talking. She curls up in my lap and says, Daddy, can we have evening prayer? I'm so glad, you know. Because, and so we did. We, we used our prayer guide. We read scripture and we prayed together. And they go to bed. And then the, the other prayer I do, and again, I'm not perfect. It's this prayer right before falling off to sleep. Um, it's called Compline in the Anglican tradition. You know what I've learned over the last four years as I've been practicing fixed hour prayer? I've learned Isaiah 26 verse 3. Oh God, you will keep in perfect peace those who mind, whose mind is fixed on you. For in returning and rest, we shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be our strength. That's, Psalm 20, that's Isaiah 26, 3 and 30, verse 15. In returning and rest, we're saved. So throughout the day, I've got these moments where I return. What I've discovered is that prayer is the home. For the soul. And the problem with many of us is that our souls are homeless. All things have a home. The bee has a hive. The bird has a nest. For the soul, prayer is the home. And a soul without prayer is a soul without a home. And so at these fixed moments throughout the day, now, I, I can do long periods of time. That's my job as a pastor is to pray. Now, some of you shouldn't do long periods of time in, during the day. You shouldn't. That would be a betrayal of your vocation. What you've got to do is develop these practices that turn your soul into something that is always at prayer. That's what pray without ceasing is. And these practices help you to do that. I encourage you to take the biblical wisdom... On time, seriously. And you will probably find out it could be the most radical thing you do in our culture. Let's pray.